Space people, plain old party people, cats, dogs, all the ships at sea. It, it's another episode of the Sensitive Skin Podcast. I'm your host, Bernard Meisler. I'm the editor-in-chief of Sensitive Skin Magazine. And we've got a very special episode for you today in honor of the re-release, the long-awaited re-release of the classic, hilarious, raunchy, Afro-surrealist satire, Negrophobia, by Darius James, which is coming out February 19th from the New York Review Books Classics. Uh, first came out about 25 years ago, made a little bit of a stir, and then, uh, yes, it's become a uh, cult classic in the intervening years, and a lot of people never got a chance to read it. Now they can. So anyway, I sat down with my old pal Darius James, and we talked about... Oh, his growing up in New Haven, uh, moving to L.A., hanging out at the comedy store, and uh, he tells a funny story about heckling Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor heckled him right back. Uh, yeah, we talked about his writing process, magic. Uh, we couldn't uh, have too much of a conversation without getting into uh, um, talking about the uh, Jack Parsons and the, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Manson, all that fun stuff. Yeah, we had we we had a good time. I think it was a little. It was a funny interview because again, we've known each other for such a long time. For some reason, I think we were both nervous. I don't know why, but I think it worked out okay. Anyway, I also just wanted to read you uh, a, a brief description of Negrophobia. This is from the uh, Amazon website where you can get it. Darius James's scabrous, unapologetically raunchy, truly hilarious, and deeply scary negrophobia is a wild-eyed reckoning with the mutating insanity of American racism. A screenplay for the mind, a performance on the page, a work of poetry, a mad mix of genres and styles. A novel in the tradition of William S. Burroughs and Ishmael Reed that is like no other novel. Negrophobia begins with the blonde bombshell Bubbles Brazil succumbing to a voodoo spell and entering the inner darkness of her own shiny being. Here, crackheads parade in the guise of Muppets, Muslims beat conga drums, Negroes have numbers for names, and H. Rap Remus demands the total and instantaneous extermination of the white race through spontaneous combustion. By the end of it all, after going on a weird trip for the ages, Bubbles herself is strangely transformed. So, uh, I should also tell you that um, if you do get tired of our conversation at any point, you can skip to the end, around the 55-minute mark, and Darius reads a section of uh, Bubbles taking a pretty wild trip on the subway. Uh, the other thing I have to say is, unfortunately, the new cover is not as offensive as the original cover, but what are you going to do? Anyway, without further ado, here's my conversation with Darius James. So, uh, guest today is the one and only, the wonderful and fantastic, multi-talented Mr. Darius James. Got oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I'm glad to be here, I suppose. Yeah, so what, uh, so are you getting ready for the, um, reissue of Negrophobia? More or less. Um, actually, a friend of mine just finished doing an animation, uh, book trailer. Oh, Before nice. the book, which I find rather funny. Possibly you can run it on, uh, sensitive skin. I'd be happy to. Sure. 
this this is kind of awkward because I don't actually speak to people <laughs> often. That stay home. You're so, a home buddy. Uh, more or less. I mean, New Haven is awful. Uh-huh. Actually. Uh-huh. So no, I mean, no real reason to leave the house. In the 70s, it was, you know, it was interesting in the 70s. We had the Panthers and various uh, hippie cults, things like that, which I was involved with. But none of that's happening now. Right. So you, you grew up in New Haven, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I... I was born in Long Branch, and my parents decided to move to New Haven because they, the so-called educational opportunities, work opportunities, it was a model city in the late 50s with uh, renovations going on everywhere, that sort of thing. Where did they come from before New Haven? Um, a Long Branch, New Jersey. Okay. My father, curiously, lived in a house that he grew up in a house that was uh, where he was neighbors with Norman Mailer. Oh, really? Yeah. His uh, yeah. Apparently, Norman Mailer's father, like he he dealt in junk. Basically, he sold. You know, he sold. Junk. Uh huh. So they moved to New Haven. So New Haven was happening in the seventies and uh, not so much anymore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I when I lived here, when I was growing up here in the seventies, you know, I went to a lot of coffee houses. Was involved with uh, experimental theater, radio, that kind of thing. Um, I lived for a while in. A commune, you know, mm -hmm. midnight dipping, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> and was there any uh, interaction with the Yale folks back then? Uh, actually, yeah. That was probably the one time, that's the one time that I remember that the town-gown relationships were, like, really good. And the blacks students center at Yale you know they the uh, director um, Khalid Lum he made it a point to do community outworks to include people in um, programs that he ran out of uh, the center you know I took you know for instance I Went through, went to their creative writing workshops, uh -huh, that uh -huh. sort of thing. That was, that was uh, one one of which was conducted by a Baraka, a Miri Baraka. Mm -hmm. And didn't you say something about how you took a lot of classes there? Did I? No, I would sit in on some classes. I sat in in classes with um, Robert Ferris Thompson, John Swed. You know, I sat in on a class with Baraka, mm -hmm. um, had that actually that was where I was first introduced to the living theater. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. They had, uh, they had they used to do a lot of stuff in New Haven, didn't they? Uh, when they first the apparently they had owed a bunch of taxes. 
and like split the country, moved to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And um, in about 68, they uh, came back to the States and their first show was at, um, at Yale, at the Yale Drama School. Uh-huh. And they were advertising for babysitters and I was one of them. Yeah, I okay. came there babysitter. You know. And it, so it was Julian Beck and oh god I can't remember her name who was the woman who ran the limit? Uh, Judith Molina, Julian Beck, yes, right, right, Judith Molina. But isn't that when she met her uh, younger man who she was with for uh, forty years after that, that? That may very well have been true, but yeah. I was like thirteen years old. I was not aware of that. Uh-huh. Actually, there was a. Uh, you know, they had the space across the street from Steve's place. Sure. You know, and um, I don't remember his name, but you know who I'm talking have... about the other guy who ran the living theater along with uh, uh, along with Judith after Julian Beck died. I can't remember his name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I remember. But sure, of course, I remember the living theater across from Steve's house. We just used to like wander back and forth between the two. <laughs> Yeah, all day yeah. and all night long. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, that was actually the that experience kind of like turned my head around. You know, I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I I saw Frankenstein. Oh, you know, sing for Frankenstein, and that shit was wild to me. You know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually actually asked Julian Beck if I could join, but he said no. I was. Far too young. Oh. <laughs> and so uh, how did you uh, leave New Haven? For, where, where did you uh, go after leaving New Haven the first time? And what, what made you leave? Went, nah, I went to um, L.A. Right, right. Why? No, let me see what happened. Um, after high school, was a student on and with this program called Oceanics. Basically, Oceanics was a school ship. Okay. And uh, we sailed from the British Virgin Islands throughout the Netherlands Antilles, eventually ended up in South America and did extensive field trips in South America and um, Costa Rica and eventually came back. After that, I worked for a year as a secretary at some recreational recreational center. Went to a Quaker college for about a year and then moved to New York. Uh-huh, okay. And when did when did you move to New York the first time? This was in 78. Yeah, okay. So that was years before I I met you. I think I met you after you had been out to LA and came back in like 85 yeah, or 86 was, or something like that. That was like 80 85. You know, we met in like 85 cuz that that was when I started hanging out at either nor. Right, right. We were all hanging out at neither nor and Tina's yeah. place on Avenue D. <laughs> yes. Tina's Tina's home for wayward writers. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so let me let me ask you a real basic question though. So what is it that uh, uh, made you um, want to become a writer? Like who were your who were your big influences when you were growing up, and what is it when you were decided like I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be a writer? Um, I don't really know. I started writing when I was in the sixth grade. These these weird fantasies, mm -hmm. you know that that children are interested in. Right now, that I think back on it. When I was in the fourth grade, I had read Doctor Doolittle, uh -huh. the Adventures of Doctor Doolittle, and there was a scene in Doctor Doolittle where Doctor Doolittle goes to Africa and he's kidnapped by a tribe of uh, cannibals. The prince of the tribe is in love with this fairy tale princess. And Dr. Doolittle takes the prince and dunks his head in a bucket of white paint so he can cork this fanciful princess he saw in a fairy tale book. And I was like appalled. Uh -huh. I'm just like, what the fuck is this? So immediately, so the next thing I read right after that was um, Baraka. Well, Leroy Jones at the time. Um, the Toilet and uh, The Dutchman. And that was like, wow, I didn't know you could curse in writing. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, and so I kind of like that was the thing that that first drove me to writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that particular time, and yeah, um, no, nah, I was I was doing like a lot of eight millimeter films, you know, horror movies. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The writing thing happened because I realized that you had to write scripts. So, like my first. My first things were actually um, plays, you know, that were you know, basically, you know, because I was influenced by um, Baraka, you know, I basically, you know, I wanted to be an actor or something along those lines. Uh -huh. Is that why you moved to L.A.? I'm pretty, I went to L.A. because I wanted to write mm -hmm. and specifically because I wanted to write comedy, you know, like Richard Pryor was like my hero right you right. know and so i wanted to write for like Pryor and jimmy walker and all those people and so i you know so i lived in l.a and spent an awful lot of time at the comedy store mm -hmm. and you know i got to know some of those people uh-huh so uh, did you know paul mooney yes i knew paul mooney rather well actually uh-huh uh -huh. at the time <clears throat> He's quite a character, I understand. Uh, the thing about Paul Mooney was that basically I, what I learned from Paul Mooney is kind of like what not to do. <laughs> Actually, there's a the Rhino box set of Richard Pryor's work uh -huh. on number disc number nine. That nigger is still crazy. Mm-hmm. You can actually hear me in the background 
heckling and laughing at Richard Pryor. <laughs> and there's a certain moment he 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 just like breaks character and cusses me out. Oh, I gotta check that out. Yeah, um, you can you can hear it because I was talking about the Black Panthers and shit like that, and he just like just lost it, you know. You know, because no, they had you know some of their the beginning of um his change when he switched over from being a straight comic to being the Richard Pryor that we know, right. Yeah, he was like living in Oakland. So he was in the thick of th- in the thick of things. Yeah. Um in fact, Mooney was actually a part of that the early form, you know, the early um Black Panther group when there was a study group. Bobby Seal was trying to be a nightclub comic. That's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Huh. And um and apparently I don't know what happened, but that relationship didn't go very well. Pryor like responded badly to 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 my shouting out things about Panther Park. It's 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 interesting. You see, um, if you see clips of like Pryor or George Carlin from like the yeah. mid '60s or whatever, mm-hmm. they're just very traditional stand-up comics, right? And right. I I don't know if this is true, but I heard it somewhere that the that those guys were liberated by Cheech and Chong. Huh. That those, that they were really the first ones to like, just go up there and talk about drugs and sex and whatever, that they're the ones who actually broke those, you know, taboos. I, I don't know if that's true. They're certainly not as funny as those other people are, but it's, uh, it's, I thought yeah. that was kind of interesting. And that's kind of interesting because, like, Cheech and Chong basically started on the Chitlin circuit. Right. Tommy Chong was, you know, doing shit for, like, Motown. Right. He was a musician. Yeah. Session man. And then when they, when they moved down to L.A., they uh, started, you know, the, their early work was, like, in black nightclubs. You know, early Chitlin circuit mm-hmm. stuff. Hmm. So you came back from L.A. because... I guess you were. Uh, I don't know. There's a. There's an old. There's an old joke about L.A. I don't know if you ever heard this. But what's the difference between uh, L.A. and Las Vegas? What? When people lose in Las Vegas, they go home. No. Yeah. But, uh, so anyway, things didn't work for you in L.A. You were smart enough to leave, I guess. So. Yeah, things got really weird in L.A. L.A. in the '70s must have been a weird place. <laughs> I would go, you know, I would hitchhike a lot in LA because the public transportation was terrible. Mm-hmm. I'd be on the street hitchhiking. There'd be like some amazing looking teeny bopper like on the street with me, right? You know, also trying to get a ride. You know, the, these guys would ignore the teeny boppers and come pick me up. <laughs> you know, it it was fucking twisted. <laughs> Uh, when did you when did you start writing Negrophobia? Um, seventy nine. Oh yeah, okay. Cause yeah, I think you were working on it when I met you already. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was haphazard basically because I wasn't living anywhere. I didn't have um, you know, I didn't have any real stability in my life, so hmm. I couldn't work on it. 
caution. Right, right. I mean, I think it's great that it's been that it's about to be republished. So when's the release date? Is it the 18th? February 19th? February 19th. 19th. Okay. And it's kind of interesting that it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, I guess, become recognized as a, a cult classic, if you will, over the years. So yeah. I think that's great. But well, I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but it, it seemed like it was almost suppressed when it came out. I mean, one of the things I really remembered really well was that the cover was uh, really controversial, right? And so the, the New York Times ran an article about the cover, and then they didn't fucking review the book when it came out like a week later. Right. Yeah, well, one, the cover thing, you know, I thought was pretty silly. Um, that was because of the woman, a woman who worked at um the publisher she had complained oh was that what it was okay yeah and, so, and, and the cover uh, again was like bubbles under a uh a street light just this bulb this uh ra rather um this light bulb headed character race so-called racist caricature right right her shadow was i think like a yeah, the racist caricature. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now the cover itself is in the Smithsonian. Oh wow! But that was also that was the '80s when blackface was still okay. So I don't see what the uh, you know. No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> apparently well, in Virginia, anyway. I, yeah. Well, um, actually, I remember when Billy Crystal like showcased at the comedy store. People were pissed. But really? anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. It was a Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg. Didn't they do it like in yeah. the 90s and gotten a lot of trouble for it, I think? Yeah. 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 But I was uh, uh, over Christmas. I was with my family. We were like, oh, let's watch, you know, let's watch a wholesome Christmas movie. So we uh, were looking around Amazon Prime and we didn't want to watch, uh, you know, any of the usual suspects. So we put on uh, Holiday Inn uh, mm -hmm. with... Uh, Bing Crosby and Danny Kay. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the film that, that uh, showcased White Christmas, the which I believe is still the biggest selling single of all time, even <clears throat> 70 years later, White Christmas. And there's a scene in there where they're just going along and all of a sudden, you know, Der Binger comes out in blackface. <laughs> and we we're all just like, whoa, oh boy, I didn't see that coming. So, but this is a you know major motion picture, huge hit at the time. So, like, there's a demarcation line. So, 1944, blackface, totally acceptable by mainstream society. You know, <laughs> when, when <laughs> and in the 1980s Virginia, still totally acceptable, I guess, among you know. Well, yeah, I mean, after minstrelsy fell out of uh, popularity. You know, in terms of national touring shows, that sort of thing, um, there were still like these uh, clubs, these local uh, clubs, minstrel clubs hmm. that, that people used to perform, like um, Blackface Entertainment. That went, on, went in for quite a while, you know, into the 60s. Hmm. In fact, a lot. Nobody's mentioning this now in terms of the blackface controversy but a lot of black performers 
performed in blackface. Right, right. It was um, Nipsey Russell. I think he was like the first black comedian not to perform in blackface. Wow. Blanche, you know. And, and who was Pick the, me. Pick me. Yeah. And who are the, who are the, uh, shit, I can't remember. The, the two big radio stars from the 30s and 40s. Oh, you mean Amos and Andy? Oh, yeah, Amos and Andy, yeah. And didn't they, didn't they, when they went out and, like, performed in theaters, didn't they put on, like, white face and black face on top of it or something like that? So people thought they were white people putting on black face? Uh, I think you might be confusing Tim Moore. Tim Moore, who was the Kingfish on the television show, prior to retiring from Black Vaudeville, used to do a um, act. He, he, he did like Othello. And one half of his face was black and one half of his face was white. One half, he was um, male. The other half was female. Huh. And this was... This was his act prior to do uh, prior to doing the Amos and Andy TV show. Uh, he had retired and he'd been called out of retirement by by one of the writers of the Amos and Andy show, who, in fact, I'm trying to remember his name, had actually come up with the characters for Amos and Andy. Well. The, come up with the characters that the Amos and Andy characters were based on. He was a black comedian. He was part of um, he was part of a comic writing duo. I can't remember the names yeah. offhand. And so, when did the when did uh, black comedians start being able to leave the Chitlin circuit and play in you know mixed clubs or white clubs? Was that the Comedy Store? That was Dick. Dick, Dick Gregory. Gregory had, oh, okay. Dick Gregory had like played um, the Playboy Club in oh, Chicago. Oh, that's right. Of course, yeah. That was like a, a real big moment. Yeah. And that that was the breakthrough, and then that's when you started um, seeing more adventurous black comedians. Huh. When um, was that? Was that like the fifties? Still, when that happened, or no, it was nineteen sixty, I think. Okay. And but then I'm thinking Bill Cosby might have been on like the Steve Allen show back way back then, too. Well, Steve Allen, Steve Allen was out of New York, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But he. he yeah, that would make sense. Um, uh, Cosby started working, you know, the cafe. while What? Like 64. OK, might be that late. Yeah. Whatever happened to him anyway? <laughs> I loved him when I was a, I loved him when I was a kid and I remember the uh one of his albums had a track on it called Spanish Fly which I remember yeah. listening to when I was like 10 kind of made me uncomfortable. I was like I don't know what he quite he's talking about. There's something wrong here. There's something but uh if you listen to, if you listen to that on uh YouTube, you can find it. He's basically yeah. outlines his whole strategy for the rest of his life, you know. Um I not cuz I remember I picked up that album when I was a kid cuz I was like a huge like Bill Cosby fan. I lo my thing was like I was interested in old radio, old-time radio. Um Yeah, me too. Like lights out. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Did you listen to the um, 
what was it called? The revival show in the seventies, the uh, GE Mystery Theater. Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah, that was with, great. I love with e, yeah with E. G. Marshall. Yes, but yeah, I used to love that stuff too. I I, I loved when they would play a they would play a rerun of uh, Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds on Halloween night and stuff like that. And, yeah, one of my, one of my earliest like pot freakouts was like you know I I can't smoke pot. It just makes me like really paranoid. And I remember this one occasion I was visiting some friends up in um, Brookline, Massachusetts, and we smoked a lot of dope and they played War of the Worlds. <laughs> I lost it. I love that. You know, which is actually what I'd like to do um, with Negrophobia. Rather than simply have an audio book, I'd like to turn it into like an old style like radio play. That's a great idea. Uh, I've been listening to some audio books recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that they do a lot of times that I really don't like is the narrator tries to speak the dialogue with different, uh, you know, different voices. Like he, like he speaks high pitched when it's a female speaking or, you know, speaks in the accents. And I was like, this is terrible. Why not just do a, you know, yeah. Do a radio play of it would be so much better. Yeah. I'm, I, the possibilities for doing it are there except the money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, which is what retards most of my projects. Yeah. You know, they, I can't find the money, but I've been talking to this friend of mine uh, named Nicole Morier. Mm-hmm. She's a, I, I like her voice and her sense of humor. I thought she'd be ideal for Bubbles, you know, the, the sort of radio voice for Bubbles. But she also has, um, she's also like, a songwriter, singer. She, you know, she's written for like Britney Spears, mm-hmm. Serena, Tom Jones, <laughs> and uh, she did the music for this musical called The Glove. Basically, it's a hysterical version of Michael Jackson's life, as told from the point of view of his glove. <laughs> It and screamingly funny. That I, sounds great. Oh, it is. Um, as far as I know, um, Johnny Depp's company has picked it up, and they're looking for a place to produce it in L.A. So it may happen. What was your uh, process? What is your process in writing? And how? I guess what I'm trying to ask is how uh, do you involve magic? in your process that's been my the relationship between magic and art has been like my primary interest since high school Mm -hmm. okay i've been involved with though not initiated into a lot of um magical fraternities everything from, you know, your basic lesbian, feminist, Wicca, 
to Alistair Crowley, OTO, and, um, you know, your sort of Church of Satan type Satanist. What my process is right now, it involves a lot of deep meditation, automatic writing, basically take down the visions. But like once, you know, once I have the visions, you know, I go through the, you know, stand, you know, your, your usual practice, you know, just sitting down, writing, working, mm-hmm. working the material. I incorporate dreams, trance visions, that kind of thing. What I discovered is that you can manifest these visions by speaking the old, like, um, Testament thing. Um, the breath of God. Hmm. So by speaking, do you mean you recount your visions out loud or are you talking about like dialogue specifically or I'm talking like once, once I go through the process of uh, crafting the work, I read the, the, the written work aloud through reading the written work aloud. I at least invoke the atmosphere of the peace, mm-hmm. you know, the spirit of the peace comes through. In addition to the book that I'm working on now, um, I'm working on some spoken word texts mm-hmm. that I have written specifically to perform live with a Val Genti, a who is a Haitian electronic voodoo drummer. Mm-hmm. Okay, <clears throat> which um, you you'll see some of our first performances in San Francisco uh, sometime in March. Oh, awesome! I'll 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 be there. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'll get you the dates. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you've always been such a great performer, too. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. There's some there's some writers who you read their work on the page and it's quite good. And then you hear them read it and they fall really flat. They have no charisma. But when you read your work, it just really it, it, it comes alive. And I've seen you just like hold an audience in the palm of your hand uh, in a way that's uh, really impressive. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, the thing, the, the whole thing with me, like reading is like, when you read the work, you have to bring to the reading the same excitement you had when you first discovered those words, mm. when those words came together. I mean, that that's what you bring, I'm, what you discover, the thing that you discover while writing. Because when it begins to come together, you become very excited, you know, like I've done it. So yeah, that's yeah. what you're share, sharing with the audience. Yeah. But um, I mean, now that you mention it, though, it's a great idea because I know at least <laughs> earlier on in my writing career, I had pieces that I worked on and then I went and read them. And I, while I was reading them, I was like, no, this is wrong. I got to change this. And I always wanted, almost wanted to like start editing <laughs> a piece yeah. while I was reading it. That um, that in, That happens a lot. You know, like I'm... You know, I've been going over some stuff to read for 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 this podcast, and I'm really reluctant to do that because 
the fact that negrophobia itself like grew up in public. Mm-hmm. I would like test like bits to see what worked, what didn't, mm-hmm. and that that was the other advantage to reading, reading aloud. Mm-hmm. You know, reading public. You know, you could you could test the material. Here in New Haven, uh, there really isn't much of a spoken word scene. Uh, what there is is a bunch of people trying to do rap. You know what I'm saying? And <clears throat> unfortunately, again, it's like the people doing rap, in my experience, don't read because mm. you can hear it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, Earl, when I first got back, you know, I tried talking to some of them and they didn't want to hear it, you know. And like, you know, I've been around a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a huge fan of, of, of rap in the 80s and modern rap seems to be like the predominant form of popular music. And maybe that's why so much of it is so shitty, you know, but uh, it it almost feels like, you know, like what they used to say about painting, you know, like, like abstract painting. And there were always like some people who were doing it, who, you know, you could tell didn't know how to paint, but the, the people who were good at it knew how to draw, you know, they could do life figures. They just chose to, you know, abstract that into something else. And I think that, that if you know what i mean by the analogy there's like i think it's it's like a it's probably pretty easy to do mediocre rap without having any real understanding of you know uh history or literature but if you are if you know that stuff then it gets a lot more interesting yeah um actually i did i didn't mention that my father was a painter he was an abstract painter um sculptor and actually a lot of his work has been a big influence on mm-hmm. me in terms of, especially now, in terms of how I approach language, the rhythm of words, imagery, mm. um, the emotional reson- you know, resonance, that kind of thing. I, I can't remember her name, but there was this French rapper I really like. Um, she originally, I think her family is like from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Huh. But he comes out of the whole like sort of Marseille, Marse, you know, the rap scene in Marseille, which is, you know, African, Arabic, that kind of thing, whom I like a lot. And she, you know, you know aggressively political, beautiful stuff. Did, did you hmm? see did you see Sorry to Bother You? Yes. Yeah. That uh, the rap scene in that movie kind of like encapsulates for me like the music industry rap's place in it uh you know yeah rapping for the white audience what they wanted to hear you know what it was that finally made them happy uh i I almost fell out of my fucking seat during that scene (laughs) (laughs) i was pretty amusing um sorry to bother you i mean i would have preferred something that was more aggressively surreal but you know yeah it got there it didn't you know it didn't it's also like it's also clearly like a guy who was not trained as a filmmaker's first film you know and right uh it it could have been like about 30 minutes shorter probably it would have been yeah better could have taken off a little bit earlier you know because like if you see the trailer you think like oh 
it's like an 80s comic bit, you know, like, like, like he's using his white voice and black people talk like this and white people talk like that. And it just seemed like really pedestrian, but it got it got pretty fucking weird <laughs> by the end. Yeah. Yeah. This is another like Oakland film that was pretty surreal, which I actually preferred called Blindsided. I don't know that. Yeah, I think it's called Blindsided. Um, that's really, I mean, it doesn't, it's not overtly surreal in the sense of like people are turning into horses or whatever, Uh uh but the situations the characters find themselves in. And you get more of that 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 the feeling of the surreal. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll check. I'll check it out. Yeah, I wanted to talk about like the uh, Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and his connection to Crowley. Okay, I'm trying to remember. Ah. Uh... I went to uh, the the Harlem opening of the Scientology Center. Oh, really? Yes, they had um, what's his ass was there. Um, chef Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. Like, <laughs> you remember Isaac... him as Chef more than Isaac Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> His legacy. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it was weird because I, the Church of Scientology actually was um, wanting me to give them some information because uh, the producer, I forget the producer's name, he, uh, they produced um, Natural Born Killers. Oh, Oliver Stone? He had, yeah, Oliver Stone. It wasn't Oliver Stone, but there was like this male-female team that had uh, picked up the rights who had bought like Natural Born Killers from Tarantino. They in turn had uh, picked up the rights to uh, sex and Rockets. Sex and Rockets. That was the um, Feral House book on the life of, oh, okay. of Jack Whiteside Parsons. Which Adam had inserted some questionable information. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> And uh, like, maybe we better be careful because, uh, you know, Adam died last year. Of, uh, yes, I knew, I do know that. I'm very much aware of that. Yeah, accidental fall, you know. Or was it? Was it accidental? Yeah, I think he No, hold it. Did he fall? Yeah, he fell down the stairs in his house and hit his head. No shit. Yeah. I didn't know that. I talked to um, Christina Ward, 
I mean, Adam and I were on fairly good terms when he died. But anyway, uh, the dubious information that he'd put into this book was the whole thing where he had hired, he supposedly hired a uh, private investigator. And this private investigator apparently unearthed some um, film footage, some home film footage of Jack Whiteside Parsons. Uh, having sex with his mother. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> well, wasn't that the, wasn't that their thing? They had like so the, the Jack Parsons and the JPL. They were uh, having like Crowley style orgies and stuff like that. And L. Ron Hubbard was part well, of their gang. And... Yeah. Well, the thing with the thing with Jack Whiteside Parsons and the OTL. On one of the reasons why he's such a legend, in addition to the fact that he was an accomplished a rocket scientist, basically self-taught, right, was that he, up until the 70s, Jack Whiteside Parsons was like the first initiate of the OTO to achieve the black degree, the eighth degree, which is the black degree, which is um, that's where you find yourself in solitude. And uh, your so-called sex magic is pretty much restricted to masturbation. Um, the questions you were going to ask, go ahead. Yeah, what? that's no fun. I mean, you could do that with not even being an OTO at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you go through all Most, these different well, degrees and... Then it's like, that's it? I can... <laughs> yeah, well, the thing with... Uh, most people, like, skip that degree. They leap from seven to nine. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that eight was, like, the high... I, I was understanding that eighth was, like, the highest one or something. No, 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 no. No, there... I think there... What is it? Twelve? It's, like, eleven or twelve degrees. Um... Now, was Adam involved in the church, or was he just, you know, like... Uh, he was not, he was not, uh, no, nah, he wasn't OTL. He was um, Church of Satan. Mm, okay. From uh, Anton LaVey? Yeah, I, Anton LaVey made him a lot of money. Okay. Did, did I ever tell you that uh, the uh, he's one of the, uh, the uh, distinguished alumni of uh, my kid's high school? Anton LaVey. <laughs> no, I did not know that. They don't, they don't brag about it. They don't brag about it. They, they brag about no. Tupac because Tupac apparently went to school there for like four weeks or something like that, you know, but yeah, 
Yeah, they're, they 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 don't talk about Anton LaVey too much. <laughs> um, actually, actually, did I? I was um friendly with his undaughter. Who's in that? Berlin. The, that's uh, the Shreks. Zena. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what what happened? She was thrown out of the church for some reason, if I recall, or she rebelled against him. No, she wasn't thrown out. She left. She left. Okay. And she 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 had left. She um basically the way that she saw it was that he or she saw her a sperm donor as uh, not being really serious about Satanism, but rather uh, a hustler. Right. That was you know, for the money. Right. I mean, basically, this, the idea for the Church of Satan, how it happened, there was the old Russian embassy wherever the old Russian embassy is in San Francisco. Right. It's on Russian Hill, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Fanciest uh, neighborhood He was in living San there. And... Excuse me? I said it's the fanciest neighborhood in San Francisco. It's where, it's where Nancy Pelosi lives now. Right. Well, at the time, like Anton LaVey and some other people were living at the... Uh, old Russian embassy and a bunch of hippies started moving into the neighborhood mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't like the fact that these filthy hippies were moving into the neighborhood and someone had the idea and said hey why don't we scare them to death because these, these were these were OTO people at the time okay uh, why don't we scare them to death by holding a black mass and uh, what happened was was that they they put up all these flyers all over the neighborhood advertising the fact that they were going to have a black mass at this house thinking that they would scare away these hippies uh, what happened instead was is a whole bunch of people a bunch of hippies showed up and showed <laughs> Interest, right? People like in this man, like people like Bobby Beausoleil. I can't tell you. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was reading something about uh, Manson recently, and it was just really kind of fascinating to see that there were these ties. Supposedly, <clears throat> so Bobby Beausoleil was involved with uh, Levey through Kenneth Anger, I guess. And yeah, uh, but and Abigail Folger apparently was uh, one of his big supporters. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's like I, I don't know. There's like the, there's just like all these like, you know, like if you had like a, you know, the FBI board with the red strings, you know, the, <laughs> the, the ties between That's all those people were crazy. There's a book that I haven't been able to get my hands on. Um, it was published out of France. Nicholas Schreck uh, revised his Manson files. 
Mm. And he he goes into the entire history and all the different connections between like the people involved. Right. right. I haven't yeah, I, I haven't been able to get my hands on the book. You know. Yeah, but it was it was uh it was crazy the all the connections between yeah. uh, uh those people and what was his name the uh, Jay Sebring right was like the yeah. hairdresser but he was really like the biggest uh, drug dealer in Hollywood and uh yeah so there was probably some drug deal going going bad and and you know the whole thing with Manson's fascination with the Beatles and uh this happened well i mean there's and, and so the beatles the beatles were in india and they were also with uh mike love and mia farrow mia farrow starring in rosemary's baby at the time that i think levey right. was uh consulted on um that's not true that's not true no, he was consulted on uh, the devil's reign oh, the devil's reign yes the classic with ernest yeah. borgnine yeah, Ernest Borgnine, who, by the way, used to live here in Hamden. But <laughs> um, actually, the, the director of of uh, Devil's Reign also directed Dr. Fives, the abominable oh, Dr. Really? Fives. Okay. Yes, yes. A uh, wonderful book on Dr. Fives just came out by um, Justin Humphreys. I couldn't even watch those movies when I was a kid. Really? Uh, too scary. Yep. Oh, no. I mean, that, that Dr. Fox was like my favorite horror movie as a child. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's too, too much, too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just scared of Vincent Price. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this, even though, you know, <laughs> I feel stiff. All right. I look forward to seeing you uh, IRL, as the kids say. Yes. Yeah. All right, man. Take care. All right. Take care. Peace. Bye. Bye. Interior subway car morning. Trains loud locomotive rattle. Pull back from close shot of the urban tribal ovals painted on Bubbles' face to medium shot of Bubbles bunched into a ball on the subway train's plastic bench. The train's rock and rumble rattles her bod. Bubbles is seated between a nurse and a wino. The nurse is fat and black. The wino is black and babbling. Sporting a dried-out, high-top Little Richard Conk, the wino is dressed in bits of discarded costuming He's discovered in the theater district's trash bins. He wears fungus-covered feather boas, a sequin g-string, fishnet stockings, a gummy grime-covered gold-made jacket, and a pair of purple platform shoes. Believing the subway car to be the set for Arsenio Hall's television talk show, the wino preens for the TV camera patting the smears of aqua gel smudged on his high-top conk. He laughs, slaps his thighs, and smokes invisible cigarettes. Feathers and sequins float to the floor. I was making that big-time money back in 1920. $250 a week. And do you know why? I was the original little rascal. So... 
paddles his cougar skins. This is no Arabian Nights, brother. This is the all too real nightmare of America, the treacherous. And I am not a nigger. A nigger exists only in the blue eyes of the devil. My name is Al Shabab Shabazz has read. I'm an inner city shaman, a minstrel of mal mal metaphysics, and a pop poet of oppressed people people's propaganda. Do you have a quota for Allah? Oh please, nigga! My head, shut up! Yo, anybody know what color classification this nigga's complexion qualified for? I don't know, but if you rub his row, I bet your jeans fly out and a puff of reefer smoke and grant you three wishes. The passengers explode with laughter. In spite of his embarrassment, the albino continues pounding his kunga drum. Domestics, factory workers, street hustlers, junkies, transvestites, and other slum dwellers of increasing strangeness board the subway car and converge on bubbles from all sides. A ring, a ring of ghoulish faces revolve around the periphery of Bubbles' visions, all with large bloodshot eyes, bone-pierced nostrils, and clacking plate-distended lips. An onrush of fragmented images evoked in low-lit eeriness stab Bubbles' consciousness in quick succession, congealing into a cubist portrait of urban paranoia, a minister with no face, the hollows of his skull covered by a scabbing layer of undulating skin. Leans forward and waves his hands before Bubbles in silent malediction. A noisome brood of palsy retards, drooling mongoloids, grinning pinheads, slithering, slithering quadriplegics, and humpbacked dwarves shamble through the subway car, squealing and grunting like pigs, pigs clustering around Bubbles in, in curiosity. They pour her breasts and hair, wheezing a pathetic sound midway between a pant and a whine. Hyperventilating with terror, Bubbles shuts her eyes in cold horror. When her eyelids open, Bubbles finds just inches in front of her nose, a testicle drooping from an open fly, as few strands of pubic hair matted with a crust of dried semen. Bubbles looks up. A junkie, stooped and nod, hangs over Bubbles with one hand gripping an overhead strap. His pelvis swings back and forth with the train's rock and rumble. Locomotives and kunga thuddings are synchronized to the junkie's pelvic thrusts. Two ill-tempered young negroes stand on either side of the junkie, speaking with fervent intensity. The second ill-tempered young negro is a cane-tapping psychophant. Wall-to-wall whiteys. Imagine me up north in Maine with wall-to-wall whiteys. Me and this other brother. And he didn't even count. He was one of those upwardly mobile niggas of the bushy boogerhood. An androided nigger. Right. Manufactured in one of whiteys nigger factories. The original prototype for nigger baby candies. Pop hot from a monster mold. A Klingon nigger. A Klingon nigger, the coon from Planet X, spoke an alien tongue, just me and this attitude buffoon amongst wall-to-wall whiteys. As a genuine jitterbug and jiggaboo, them hunkies made a point to check me out. 
Oh, fanny bitches, I was accidentally on purpose bumping their titties in my face and rubbing my kinks talking about it do feel like a blow pad. In the mornings, when I be taking my showers, I was pulling fistfuls of blind pussy hair out my crotch. Brother, I was gunning. Gunning the great white bitch. Gunning the great white bitch. I swore the total annihilation of the entire white race and anything left over with the faintest trace of that demon hunky scent. For the bitch drove me mad. Was nothing a nigga could relate to. A world without James Brown 45s. No James Brown 45s. No Jet Magazines. No Jet Magazines. No greasy collard greens. No greasy collard greens. Just my black ass and an afro pick.